six down five. Jonas Jarepko. Jonas for bonus. The three ball. My man. <laughs> Next Celtics possession. This time it's Al Horford. Had a great game for the most part, but wasn't flawless. Give me that! Get that shot out of here! And how we soldiered on with our work and full coffee cards. You inspired me with your tenacity. Kenny Walls, this one goes out to you. This is a to open. We spent his whole life in the game. Not so fast. Most people who sign up for health insurance. <laughs> Welcome to the stretch run here on a Wednesday on a hump day. A little technical difficulties there as we came on today. But no big deal. I am your host, Jimmy Murphy. Timmy Buttons working the boards. It's all good, Timmy. We got it. The computer's got poltergeist in it, my man. It it, it really was the computer. It just yeah. uh you know, I'd, I'd like to be up to the standards of Sully today. Because it's been going good, and but Sully wouldn't be able. Nobody would be able to do that. It, 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 it's that computer's possessed. It, it is sometimes. No, <laughs> many times, <laughs> especially when you need it not to be. Right? That's called Murphy's law, though. So, would you would you like to hear a little of Tyler Thornburg the way he played for Milwaukee last year? No, well, you know what? We'll save that. We'll play some of that when we bring Mike Shalin on of Associated Press. Uh, at the top of the second hour of the show. Certainly both Mr. Sale and Mr. Uh, Thornburg will be featured throughout the show based on yes. the guests you have. Yes, so we will uh, we will enjoy some uh, Thornburg and a Sale-related clips later on in the show. May uh, I take one brief aside? Yep. I bet to tell this to Jimmy oh, about four minutes before airtime. Uh, you know, I'm a sucker for hockey, mm-hmm. And I love listening to hockey play-by-play on the radio. Done mm-hmm. it myself, and yep. I just enjoy it. I guess I, I do love the baseball guys because they have to weave stories. Yeah. But a football game and or a basketball game on the radio, eh, I'm okay, but yeah, I can find something else to do in my life. Hockey I love. Two nights ago, I am in the car. I got XM satellite on. Someone had to run an errand that was going to take 20 minutes in the store. Mm-hmm. Jimmy on side-by-side channel so I could click it. I had Mike Lang doing the Pittsburgh game, and I had your 5 o'clock guest doing the Capitals. Tell Uh them who that is, the great play-by-play of Mr. Walton. That is John Walton joining us. He is so great, and uh, he builds up the excitement. Sometimes on road games, he's by himself, and uh, it's almost more fun. It's almost like when, uh, let's say, Johnny Most was by himself, that you enjoy it. Now, I have no problems with the home games. And having a color guy there, but I just love listening to this guy call a game. So I had sort of my two favorites, radio only, next to each other. Although I certainly do enjoy the NBC telecasts. Uh, you know, I think the professor, the doc, I should say, Doc Emmerich, and yep. your guest the other day, of Pierre course, Maguire. Pierre McGuire. And uh-huh. this seems to be the one thing that uh, Eddie is good at is a telestrator. 
He wasn't a particularly good coach <laughs> in the NHL, but man, he really does do that telestrator stuff for NBC and NBCSN. So yeah, they do a good job. But I'm uh, I'm just so looking forward to five o'clock. Yeah, I really am. So I'm I I will pay attention. I will try to do Sully's job from now till five. And then you sit but back and I'm enjoy. Going, and be a but fan, at five right? o'clock is when I know I'm going to be up. Yeah, there you go. Because your best guest of this week for me yeah. is on. Well, that will be a pleasure to have the play-by-play announcer for the Washington Capitals radio broadcast, longtime announcer, as you pointed out there. John Walton will be joining us, of course, to tee up the uh, Boston Bruins-Washington Capitals game uh, tonight down in Washington, D.C. at the Verizon Center. Uh, that place will be rocking as always. It's rivalry night on uh, NBC, so it's an uh, 8 o'clock game for you fans wanting to watch. Uh, and that, of course, is on NBC Sports Network, as we said. Um, we'll look forward to that. I'm not sure, while you love his announcing, I, I do too, I'm not sure our local fans will like the uh, the radio call I picked to bring into uh, that segment, but so be it. It's one of his best radio calls ever, and... Uh, one that uh, I was told, just to give you a hint of what the call is, uh, if you recall, there was a certain goal against the Boston Bruins scored in the playoffs uh, that sparked uh, racial epithets uh, at the goal score for the Washington Capitals at the time. I was actually told that one of the perpetrators of that was a former intern at this station. And was promptly disregarded from the station. It's rightfully one, so. It's one of the secrets. It's something you and I can't control as what I consider normal human beings. But I could remember a time in Philadelphia where the 76ers were doing great. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, great. But the Flyers needed to rebuild, and they also had the Philly Phantoms. And over a Friday through Sunday, the Phantoms played two games, the Flyers played two games, and, and this is all in one building, so did the uh, 76ers, the two lowest attended games were the NBA games. And I have to believe there's a little bit of a lot of white people went and saw the two Phantom games and the Flyer games, and, you know... The mixed crowd could only get about 15,000, 13,000 into the building for the Sixers. It's just kind of true. Even if you've grown up watching in New England, guys like Greer and plenty of great African-American players, I loved as a goalie, Grant Fuhrer. Oh, my goodness. You know, that was as good a glove as I've ever seen. But it is kind of true that you got 40 white guys with three white officials in front of, when you look at the stands, very heavily uh, Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And I thought in Philly, when they had a first-place Allen Iverson team, the basketball team would bang out 19,000 both of their games. And they didn't. They got like 15,000, 13,000. Flyers sold out both of those and close to sell out because of the cheaper ticket prices, somewhere around 16,000 with the two Philly Phantom games. And, of course, now they're, what, Lehigh Valley or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not in Philly anymore. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, John Walton joining us at the top of the last hour of the show. Uh, we'll also be joined in that hour to to do some more teen up for the game. Uh, Mark Diver of the Providence Journal will be joining us. 
uh, to talk about the Bruins side of that game tonight. Uh, so look forward to that as we get ready for the Bruins Capitals. But lots before that uh, in this hour, in the next segment, uh, Timmy and I will be uh, sharing our Larry Bird memories. I know the guys were talking about in the last show. Uh, Larry Legend is uh, 60 years young today. And uh, we'll play some clips from a documentary that ESPN did a while back on him uh, and, and talk about our own memories of Larry the Legend Bird, uh, one of the greatest uh, basketball players and one of the greatest athletes to ever grace the Boston pro sports scene. Uh, and then we will continue with the basketball theme and um, we'll look ahead to the Celtics Magic game tonight uh, and bounce around the NBA and maybe some college hoops as well with our good friend Peter Yiannopoulos of TSN and RDS up in Canada. He is based in Montreal, uh, was a former assistant coach at UMass Amherst and a gentleman I got to know well during my time uh, working in Montreal and he does a great job covering uh, the game of basketball, so we will have him on to close out this first hour. In the second hour, we will, uh, as I said, discuss the Red Sox moves and the uh, reaction, the asinine reaction of a lot of people around here And these, as I said yesterday. I, I mean, I don't care. You want to call me an old man? You want to say I sound uh, narrow-minded or cynical? It, it seems to be... The majority of the negative reaction towards these trades, I was just going to tell you about that, Timmy. You're coming in hot there. You're coming in hot. I know that's how she likes it, but we don't. <laughs> I now have my male-enhancing windscreen. Oh, Thank you. This show just took a downturn for the worse. <laughs> and we will go to commercial break. No, no just kidding. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that this younger generation that – you know, as we've discussed, uh, we said we mentioned it with Lou Maloney yesterday, Tim, and we've discussed it as well with in the hockey segments. They're so in love with the you know sabermetrics and analytics and, and all that jazz when they decipher whether a trade was good or not, or, or when they analyze a player. Look, I'm not discarding that stuff at all. I, I think it's very valuable. It's obviously valuable tools when deciding a player's value to your team and, and how he'll fit in and all that with your game plan and your system. By all means, use it. But it's not the end-all, be-all. And the end-all, be-all is that the Red Sox just got the best possible pitcher available on the trade market, possibly, arguably, awards aside, the best pitcher in baseball right now. And one of the top three to five best pitchers over the last six years. And statistics support that. Did they give up the, you know, Baseball America's top rated prospect in Mankata? Yes. You damn well they did. You got to give to get. But I'm sorry, do we live in a world of potential? And, oh, we could potentially do this down the road and the Red Sox could potentially win if they kept these prospects, potentially be this way. Or do we live in a world of reality and what's now is now? And what's now is now is the Red Sox have not just a immediate in the terms of this coming season window to win the World Series. At least a two to four year window, you could argue, because of the young prospects that are already big leaguers on their team window to win the World Series. Okay? So, 
Why are you going to keep prospects that are just going to remain minor league prospects because there's already young, gifted, talented, proven players at the big league level in their positions? Just for the sake of keeping prospects because you're in love with them and then they do oh, the sabermetrics are so amazing. It's insane. And I, and I want to talk to Mike about that and, and just how, you know, I don't know if it's just people in this area are always going to complain and moan about something or what have you. But, man, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I get it. That's the world of pro sports. But sometimes you got to just give credit where it's do- doing. You know, our man Lou Maloney we had on yesterday, I listened to him today, and Dombrowski has taken a lot of hits, Tim, about being a guy that gives up on prospects too early. A guy that just is in love with dealing for the veterans and the big names just for the sake of doing it. And uh, does not know how to build an organization for mm-hmm. the long run. Well, Mr. Maloney pointed some in, some interesting things out today. Uh, so maybe these people who are arguing that that's what Dombrowski is and putting that label on him, maybe they want to do their research. Because let's look at the track record, as Maloney pointed out today. And I don't know, I'll ask you off the top of your head if you can remember. Where did Dave Dombrowski get his start? Uh, was that uh, Florida? No. No? Okay, think, I don't think know. Think North. Think hockey. Really? Think uh, so, poutine. Uh, and, and and nice ballerinas on St. Catherine Street. So, so I should be an Expo uh, fan when I'm thinking of him. Yes. Yeah, okay. Started with the Montreal Expos. Yeah. He was there from 91 to 93. Okay, and I'll tell you one thing you could have a pat you could look at as a patent. The poor guy has either been fired or moved on right before his work has come to fruition. So he had that team so that he had built there that not been a lockout would have won the World would, Series yeah, likely. All right? away. He built that team. Yeah. Okay? He built that team. All right. Then he moves on to Florida, as you said. And he gets out right before they win it in ninety seven. But he built that team. Because people had to build teams twice down there because Mr. Blockbuster Video would win, exactly. lose $40, $50 million. Yep. So he let everybody go. Then they'd have to rebuild again. That's him building that second winning team. Exactly. He's not there to pick up the trophy, right? but and then he had to start he was from there scratch. again mm-hmm. and built up the 03 team that won it in Florida. But wait, then he goes to Detroit. And they're like, we need you to revamp everything. And he builds them into a perennial contender. And it had been from, a long time since Sparky's 84 yeah, team. From they, like, you know what, 2010 till, till now? Yeah, there were like 9,000 fans in the new ballpark because, well, they were bad. And, and if not for Big Poppy, he maybe wins a world championship. You never mm-hmm. know. Okay? And so this is what I don't get. You can look at all your stats and all your analytics and all that. But you also got to look at your facts. And you also got to do your history. Your research before you're going to sit here and blast Dave Dombrowski for these deals. All right? Well, my my answer to that is to get back to our love, hockey. Mm -hmm. The only reason that Scotty Bowman didn't stay in Montreal is because they wouldn't let him, as they say, buy the groceries. They wouldn't let him be GM. Like Bill Parcells said, yep. So how about them Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh and Detroit and everywhere that Scotty went? And, by the way, started with... I have to take uh, Mr. Solomon's money and do something with this expansion team. I'll take the older Montreal Canadiens, give them their first $50,000 contracts they ever had, and I'll have Glenn Hall backed up by an even more ancient shock plot. 
So we're talking four years in a row Stanley Cup Finals. In fact, they had to finally do something, move Chicago to the West, and then even go into a system where they let the best two teams play. It didn't have to be yeah. East-West anymore. But the point is, anywhere you let Bowman run a team, forget that he was a good coach, he got trophies to prove it. I know. And I, I just don't get the knock on, on Dombrowski. I mean, it, the, the guy just went out and in one day addressed every specific need that the Red Sox had. Not just one. He addressed every specific need. Even first base. He got, he got a first base slash DH right. that could feel better than David Ortiz, by the way. Oh, yes. And, and will be able to hit, on average, half as many home runs and half as many RBIs. I think that's pretty good. I mean, what does this guy have to do? Oh, I'm sorry. He has to sit in front of his computer and fall in love with stats and prospects. Because that's the way to make it in this new sabermetric analytic world. I, you know, I'm just getting tired of it. And Hags and I talked about it. I don't care. If you, got, if you can back up your argument, call us up. 603-883-9900. 603-883-9900. Hit me up on Twitter. At Murphy's Law 74 the show is at the stretch run NH or the station at ESPN NH. Tell me I'm a moron. I don't care. As long as you back up your argument, I'm game. But if you're just going to come to me and throw fancy stats at me and, and not pay attention to reality, or you're going to come to me and throw potential at me and not reality, then I don't want to hear from you. And you, you may as well not listen to the show because that's what we deal in. Is reality. We're going to tell it like it is, and, and we're going to be wrong half the time. We're going to be right half the time. I'll even give you one more way if you don't want to do yeah, it. Yeah, we get the text line. Which is the chicken way, 845-827-1250. Send a text. Say that again. 845-827-1250. And we'll, we'll read them. Yeah. You, you can say, <laughs> boy, those two guys are wrong. Feel free. Feel free. Back it up, though. Yeah. That's all we ask on this show is that you back it up. And you've heard, if you listen to my show, you've heard guests disagree with me, and I respect their side as long as they back it up. That's all I'm asking, and that right now is so not present in the argument against Dombrowski in the media and on Twitter and what have you. I don't think that's much to ask for. And oh, by the way, we will talk some Patriots with our great friend, does a great job at CSNNE. Phil A. Perry will join us at the end of the second hour. So we've got a great show in store for you. Thanks for checking in here on the stretch run in the middle of the week on Hump Day on ESPN New Hampshire. We'll be back. We've got it all here on ESPN New Hampshire. To hold in pain and passion deep inside. I'm afflicted by the feelings in me that'll not be denied. Out in the crowded street, to the strangers that I meet, the Irish in me will not be denied. It's hard for me to hide. My subject die Pain and passion In my moment in the limelight Never 
And welcome back to the Stretch Run here on ESPN New Hampshire. I'm your host, Jimmy Murphy. Timmy Button's working the boards. It's a Wednesday here in the Nashua area. Kind of crummy out, but not as bad as the last couple days. And that is the Mahones bringing us in. My uh, my friend Finney McConnell, the lead singer there. They're a great band based out of Canada. They were they're from Toronto. They were based in Montreal for a little. I got to know them there. And uh, my good friend Scruffy Wallace, who's been on the show. You might remember he was on Veterans Day. Um, he was the former bagpiper for the... Dropkick Murphys, he is now the piper for the Mahones, and they uh, are great people. And a good, another good friend that I knew that didn't know them and somehow ended up in the band, Sean Riot Ryan from Montreal, is now a member as well. So we will have to, you know, thinking here, talking about that music segment we're doing. We might have to get these lads on the show, Timmy, uh, you know. Maybe as we're going on, if it's a hit and we're still, uh, we're still around come St. Patty's, could be a good band to have in studio. You know, I think there is a little conspiracy afoot that we've been left out on because um, we know Sully's in Florida. We also know that our program director goes to Florida Thursday and Friday. So there's some reason there's a congregation in the Orlando area that doesn't involve us. I guess so. You know, I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Although, I got to tell you, the program director I found on the computer through Sacred Heart University, a telecast of last night's Lowell Sacred Heart game. <laughs> Same old UMass Lowell Riverhawks. Score the first basket of the game, then they watch the next 12 points go in. And I go, oh. should I keep watching this or should I turn around and watch the big TV? Yeah, I think I'll turn around and watch the big TV. I hear you. I hear you. Well, that, uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, see what's up with that. But, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get the Mahones in studio sometime soon and uh, – Figured their music would tie in nicely with what we're about to talk about now, and that is uh, Larry Legend, Larry Bird, turning 60 years old today. A lot of Larry Bird stories going around. I know the uh, the lads in the last show were discussing him and uh, talking about uh, his time here in Boston, and uh, we will do that as well. But first, we're going to play a little uh, a little tidbit from a, a documentary that ESPN did a while back on Larry Bird, so sit back and enjoy. Hello, I'm Chris Fowler for Sports Century. Larry Bird could have been a poster boy for the 1950s NBA. He wasn't fast, he wasn't sleek, and he couldn't soar far above the rim. But when he assembled all the little, ordinary, outdated pieces of himself and walked onto a basketball court, he was a player for all ages, styles, and colors. Although some Boston fans may have seen him as a white hope, Bird played above race, drawing admiration from every corner of the game. When I played, Larry Bird was the only one I feared. A lot of black guys always ask me, could Larry Bird really play that good? I said, man, Larry Bird was so good, it's, it's frightening. If you put all of us in a room, you know, Magic, Jordan, myself, and Bird, Bird probably be the guy who walks out of the room at the end of the day. Bird. We had a three-point contest at the All-Star break, and Larry walks in and says, I hope all you guys in here are thinking about second place because I'm winning this. Excuse me? 
And he started shooting, and he just didn't miss. Larry was the originator of getting in your face and talking trash. And then you sit there and you go, I'm just going up in my face talking noise. He ain't that fast, he's slow. But he knew how to aggravate you, agitate you enough to get you out of your game. I was guarding in my rookie year. He looked at me and he goes, you can't stop me. And I looked at him and I said, gosh, boy, you're, you're so confident. He goes, confident? You're, you're a rookie. You don't know anything. He proceeded to score like 10 straight points on me. The coach took me out the game. He walks by and he's laughing at me. <laughs> Larry Bird catches the ball in the corner. I take off running out at Larry Bird. And right when he's getting ready to shoot, I jump. And as I go by, <laughs> I go by him. He tells me, he says, fly, Bird. And, he, and I go right by him. He shoots the ball. It's nothing but nylon. Larry Bird was a pain in the neck. Anytime we had a chance to win, Larry Bird changed that. Larry Bird. There was a certain confidence you had because you know if you ever got in trouble, give the ball to Larry and get out of his way, and he delivered. The double team in Bird, Larry, Fink, fall away. Right. He was a cold-blooded killer. In the last 24 seconds, he would demand the basketball in the huddle. He was a basketball genius. He'd be a step ahead, uh, a thought ahead, uh, play the game like a chess game. I'd much rather guard Michael Jordan than Larry Bird because you have to play the game as a thinker when you're playing him. You have to get inside his mind. Larry wasn't quick, couldn't jump really high, but there was just some sleepless nights. Bird takes the pop. It's gone. It is he had a mind that was like a camera. He had the best hand-eye coordination, maybe, of anybody that ever played basketball. Rebound to Bird. Look at that, Look at that pass. Oh, what a shot! Bravado, backed by a devilish brilliance, helped earn Larry Bird the distinction as the only forward to win three MVP awards. Off the court, he was also less than angelic, playing pranks and telling tales, always at home in the company of bib overalls, cheap cigars, and tap brew. He was a pair in the garage guy in a champagne league. That's where he feels comfortable. I mean, he's, you know, a beer in the garage and a little conversation and tell a couple of stories, and that's a good time. Larry, myself, and Kevin McHale went out one time. I'm trying to drink with Larry, who is a two-fisted drinker. So I drank until I couldn't drink anymore. We went to eat in, eat in a restaurant. And I remember feeling bad, and I put my head in the seat, and I said, oh, man, I need some water. So I drank this big swallow of water, and what Larry had done was, like, put this whole little mini bottle of vodka in the water, and that just sent me over the edge. And it was just so funny to him that I went outside and I started feeding the animals. Practically the first week we had signed him, I get a phone call at home, 2 o'clock in the morning, it seemed like. And uh, you better get over to Burke's Tavern because uh, Larry Bird's there and God knows what's going to happen. And I thought, thinking, that's not such a great neighborhood. I'd better get over there. I go over there and he is bellied up to the bar with about 50 people around him. He's wearing a Mack truck cap and overalls. He's just a good old boy. He's having a hell of a time. And all, everybody around him is relating to him. He knew the janitors and the 
equipment guys, and those were his guys more than the high roller luxury box guys. He doesn't like phonies, stiffs them out right away. He relates to a plumber or an electrician or a cop, you know, because that's what he came from. We had a great dinner, and we said, hey, Larry, you know, you got to give a good, good tip. What? All they did was bring it from the, from the kitchen to here? No. Larry goes up, gets up, goes in the back, and gives it the uh, big tip to the cook. <laughs> He's very tight, and he doesn't like to spend money. And we're playing blackjack. After a couple hands, Larry, I think, is down like a dollar fifty or something. You know, he leaves. I'm looking, where, where's he going? You know, and he, uh, he's, he's got to quit because he's, he's losing money. He had this kind of inferiority complex. I remember him telling me when we had a long interview about dreaming about money, and it was something he constantly dreamed about. And he would find a huge sum, like a million dollars, under the front steps. I think it related to the fact that the birds were kind of poor white trash, or some people thought they were. So that he always had that to, to sort of rise above. And obviously, like a lot of people who are gifted in that one way, he could do it on the basketball court. Ah, uh, you got to be having chills listening to that if you were around during the Larry Bird era here in Boston, in the Boston area, in New England, and paid attention to that. I don't know how you couldn't. Uh, they were a dynasty. I mean, they're right up there with the likes of the uh, Canadians and the Yankees, and it was uh, it was a an unbelievable special time in Boston sports history. And uh, our own Timmy Buttons right here, actually, uh, he got to know uh, one of the play-by-play men that you heard there, Johnny Most. And uh, I'll tell you what, Timmy, I remember my my most vivid memory of uh, of Bird would be the uh, this him stealing the ball against the Pistons mm-hmm. underneath the DJ. Ah, and Most just going insane. And I remember uh, I was I was sneaking. I was my dad and my mom didn't know I was up. I was huddled in the kitchen in the corner listening to the uh transistor radio and uh and I just lost it and went nuts and they came in and what are you doing and I said come on I'm not gonna sleep here I was I don't know what I was so that was uh 87 I want to say so I was uh 12 years old or maybe 13 at the time and yeah it was uh it was something else but uh Johnny was uh, it's almost like Johnny and Larry were made for each other like there, sh- there, there couldn't be another guy that was going to call all those magical moments that Larry Bird had. They just seemed to fit perfectly. Their personalities, their the voice, the, everything. And so, like, if you, it, if I see a Larry Bird highlight and it doesn't have Johnny Most's voice with it, it doesn't feel right to me. It it was when the NBA was really learning at its entire level to do good guy, bad guy. Mm-hmm. So it made sense that this sort of swan song in Johnny Most career that you could have a game where he talk about McFilthy and McNasty or whoever for the opponents, and then that actual call you're talking about is how I followed that game. Since hockey is in our blood, I'd been to Portland. I'd stayed overnight and uh, caught two games for the price of one, so to speak, of the Maine Mariners, the first of the two AHL teams in Portland. So we were in a car, my brother, my sister-in-law, and myself, driving down 95, listening to Johnny call the Celtics and heard that steal, and it was so great. And I was glad, as you say, just about anybody who showed that as a highlight clip 
uh, you know, the Mike Lynch's of the world or whatever in Boston, mm -hmm. they used Johnny Sound. They didn't stick with uh, the TV audio. They went with that steel because he kicked it into that dog whistle, higher voice that he still could do. And, uh, yeah, it's one of the better moments of that era with that particular big three. Now, you say he kicked it in. Now, you got to work with him uh, around here towards the latter end of his radio career uh, and his life. Um, when you say kicked it in, so the, was he not normally speaking like that? Right. Yeah. Really? He, okay. Yeah. I thought that was his normal voice. No, nope. he, he, he just, when he went for it, you'd actually see his head physically go back about six inches, and he came back forward, and I would assume just like a singer changing keys, he was changing key in his call. And it was a miraculous thing to see him do, whether it was a Celtics broadcast or just he might have had a livid phone caller doing sports radio here in Nashua. And he'd be talking relatively normal to the person. There were some people weren't sure we had Johnny Most on the radio every night. But when they said something he totally disagreed with and he decided to argue, which is also, by the way, good radio, uh, yeah, he kicked it into that other gear. And it was a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, it must have been unreal. And uh you, and then working with him, I mean, what was uh, what was he like working with? Because I've I've heard some people say he was a bit of bit of a uh, difficult person at times, but uh, you say otherwise. Yeah, I do say otherwise. Uh, working in person with him, you're right. He is very last minute, no prep. Uh, oh my God, the theme is playing. His car is pulling in. This is not going to go well. Huh. But I know, I know somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom King usually walks, but uh, if he. One of his uh, things he had to do for the station was during the season. Obviously, he's not doing a talk show in Nashville, New Hampshire, where he's living. During the season, Monday through Fridays, he was to call in a 60-second sports commentary. Mm -hmm. The Celtics could be out in Seattle. And in that newsroom at about quarter past four every afternoon, the phone rang. And it was Johnny. He didn't even say hello. He'd answer it. Uh, hi, Mr. Most. Coming in three, two, <laughs> one. And they were all 60 seconds. They were all things that he had written out. They weren't off the top of his head. They were great analysts of whatever you were you know, talking about. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Well, he was a legend just like Larry Legend, and uh, those were the days. There were some good times there. But uh, we will come back, and maybe we'll get a Larry Bird story from our next guest, Peter Yiannopoulos of TSN and RDS. Uh, and we will talk some of the current Celtics and current NBA news with him as he joins us next here in the Stretch Run on ESPN New Hampshire. Stay with us. We've got it all here on ESPN, on ESPN, New Hampshire. It's wet, so you need to raise the they show us that fun of Anyways, come in, alright? Yeah, that's it. The 
for the West End Shuffle. I see you dancing, I see you dancing. I see you dancing. Yeah, it's you. Go to the West End Shuffle, alright? Check it out. Welcome back to the Stretch Run here on ESPN New Hampshire. Jimmy Murphy, your host here. Oh man, it's making me want to uh, venture north to Montreal and uh, Brutopia or Hurley's and see my man Shane Murphy there. And uh, a native of that same city is joining us now. His name is Peter Yiannopoulos, former assistant coach at UMass Amherst and NBA analyst and college basketball analyst for TSN and RDS and many other outlets. Peter, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Murph. I'm doing great. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. Have you, uh, have you had the pleasure of seeing Shane Murphy live ever? Uh, yes, I have. I have. I've been at Hurley's. Uh, he's one of a kind and uh, obviously a big, uh, a big fan, a big partner of us at the station at TSN 690. Mitch Melnick, uh, his biggest supporter and fan, so uh, good times at Hurley. Yeah, for sure. I know you've been there. Oh, yeah, just a, just a couple <laughs> times, but uh, yeah, he is something else. Now, I want to ask you, I don't know if you heard the beginning there when he was uh, he was speaking in French to the crowd. What was he saying? I didn't quite hear uh, what he was saying, uh, but definitely if he's using the, the French language, I mean, there's a lot of love coming. There's no question. Yeah, <laughs> he mixes it up. He does the French and the English, so he covers both uh, sides there, even though he is Anglo. But uh, let's get back down here to the Boston uh, area, and the Celtics are in Orlando uh, tonight, coming off a 107-106 loss to the Houston Rockets, a game they they arguably could have won. I mean, they were in it, and if uh, they hadn't made some mistakes or had some calls kind of go the other way, uh, they could have come out of Houston with a win against a, a very tough Houston team. But they head in, that's behind them now. Uh, and now they head into Orlando in a game that, you know, maybe as they left Houston they thought would have been a very winnable game, but they get news that Isaiah Thomas is out of the lineup with a groin injury. He will not be available for the Celtics tonight. Uh, how much of an effect does that have on this team considering – he is the little engine that can. Yeah, no, it's a definitely uh, a significant effect losing their best player and arguably one of the top point guards in the NBA this year. Uh, Thomas has just been sensational on both ends of the floor. I think he doesn't get enough respect on the what he does on the defensive side, but offensively, the shooting percentage, the way he could get baskets, he can put up the high average, and he facilitates and distributes for his teammates as well. Uh, so this is something that's going to hurt them. Uh, hopefully it's just for the short term, and uh, Isaiah will come back uh, sooner rather than later. But uh, they should exercise some caution here when you're dealing with a growing injury, specifically for a player that valuable. But in professional sports, you know this, uh, Jimmy, uh, opportunities for others to step up. Terry Rozier, uh, Marcus Smart, here's guys that could get a chance to handle the basketball and be the primary ball handler for Brad Stevens. Uh, definitely a game that they thought they should have won in Houston uh, up in the fourth quarter. Uh, they couldn't close it out. They couldn't stop James Harden. Al Horford 
probably makes that tip and layup 99% of the time, but it just rimmed out the other night. It's funny, they lost 107-106 the game before. They beat, they struggled to beat Philly by the same score. Uh, but they're going into Orlando tonight facing a team that's surging, that's playing extremely well, have won three in a row, and that is the magic of Orlando. Frank Vogel takes over as the new head coach there. A little bit of a tough stretch to start the season, but they're playing really, really solid basketball. They're going to have to watch out for Evan Fournier. He's been outstanding uh, from the perimeter. Uh, obviously, they got Ibaka and Biambo that start, so there's that shot blocking and rebounding ability. Uh, so I think the guys inside tonight are going to have to step it up. Al Horford, Yurepko started last game. Interesting to see what Brad Stevens does there again. Kelly Olenek's going to have to step up as well, Jay Crowder. So they're going to have to do a team collective here win in order to get a W in Orlando. You know, interesting enough, uh, they're, they're saying that one player, too, that might get some uh, some playing time out of this, and he never imagined he would be getting it uh, this week, is Demetrius Jackson, who was called up uh, from Portland, Maine, with the Maine Red Claws. Uh, and he, I guess, had to hop on a plane ASAP yesterday and meet the team in Orlando uh, to come down. But, you know, I'm a hockey guy, uh, Peter, and for those of us that aren't familiar with how the uh, – the relationship between the NBA and the D-League works is maybe opposed to the minor leagues in hockey with the NHL and AHL or in baseball with AAA and Major League. Uh, give us a little insight on that and, and how that works out. Yeah, it's definitely something that's uh, been cultivated over the last couple of years, the implementation of the partnership with the NBA D-League, uh, giving uh, players a chance to stay in North America instead of going overseas. I'm being closer to the NBA platform, and I think the the, the minor leagues or the D-League teams work in conjunction with uh, NBA franchises now. Uh, they used to be like a team would have two or three NBA franchises mm-hmm. that you could work with. Right now, the main clause, actually a good friend of mine, Scott Morrison, is the head coach, a Canadian, oh, cool. uh, for that matter. Yeah, uh, he's done a great job, and he's been with, uh, with Maine for the last couple of years, and uh, he's developed a lot of those young guys like James Young, uh, Mickey inside, uh, RJ Hunter's not with the club anymore, but Demetrius Jackson's a player that comes uh, with a lot of pedigree in terms of playing for Notre Dame, uh, a fearless competitor, sort of like Isaiah Thomas, right? Not big in stature, mm-hmm. uh, but a significant large heart plays with, with that determination, that passion. So like I mentioned before, sports is always about opportunities. Uh, he's called up, let's see what type of uh, role Brad Stevens decides to give him, but um, here's an opportunity for him to come up. Uh, there's always those 10-day contract opportunities, uh, but I think that uh, he's going to have to take advantage of that, whether he gets into the game or not, the way he's going to practice, uh, the way he's going to bring that energy level, and that's what Brad Stevens and the staff want from guys that they bring up uh, from the um, affiliates, uh, if you want to call them, uh, different from hockey where they own the rights and they're, they're there for uh, the full season. But I think uh, they've done a great job, and, and I think that Danny Ainge wants that, specifically with a young franchise with a lot of young assets. They want to develop those guys and, and have the same system so when they get called up, uh, they could be ready to go. And just quickly to stay with that, so this has gotten you know stronger in the last few years, as you said there. Will this ever get to the point where we see, you know, because we see kids drafted out of high school or drafted out of college go right into the NBA a lot and, you know, more and more out of high school or at a young age. Could it get to the point where now this is sort of that middle ground and, and, and become a stronger developmental league 
for the NBA where these kids wouldn't make the jump right away and would sort of have that transitional period? Is it, is it going towards that, or is it not close yet? Well, I think that uh, Adam Silver, once the commissioner of the NBA, once he took over for for David Stern, obviously uh, wants to be proactive, uh, changing, adapting to the times. And uh, look, we had the, the directly the drafted players uh, out of high school to the NBA. Then they put in the one-year rule. They got the one and done. Uh, and a lot of these kids, they want to be professional basketball players. And at the same time, they're worried about injuries. Uh, so they're declaring... Uh, some of them make the right decision, others not so much. But at the end of the day, here's an opportunity where you draft these players, you put them in a situation where they're working on developing themselves as basketball players on the court and even off the court specifically. So uh, they're young 18, 19-year-olds. And I don't know about you, Jimmy, but when I was 18, 19, I wasn't as mature as I am now. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> or I'm still, I'm still not. But, <laughs> But these guys are professional athletes. They're getting big contracts. They're playing in front of large crowds. Uh, right. So it's important that they're nurtured uh, and they're they're really put and consolidated in a right way, or where they could be set up for success. And I think you know, baseball, you're allowed to go back to college after being drafted. I don't think that the NBA wants to go in that avenue. Uh, but having said that, this way, a lot of the guys believe that if they stay in the D league, uh, their chances of getting called back with the NBA. Uh, will be expedited more than if they go play in Europe overseas. And, Jim, some guys are not made to play overseas in Europe. The culture difference uh, is not really for everybody. But I think more, as you mentioned, the developmental piece, uh, the cultivation piece is what's really important. And the NBA really is proactive on taking care of the younger players. And the union has done a great job. And that partnership together is great to see. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, great move by them. And I think they should continue to... uh to cultivate that and make it a reality and really make it more of a, a tight partnership. So we'll see where that goes. Hey, Peter, always a pleasure, my friend. I appreciate you taking the time. I know it was the last minute I threw it at you, so thanks a lot, all right? Anytime. Always a pleasure, Jim. Have a good one, guys. Okay, that's Peter Yiannopoulos joining us here on the Stretch Run on ESPN New Hampshire. We are going to switch gears, and we are going to talk about the hot topic in the local sports world, and that is the Boston Red Sox and the moves they made yesterday, getting Chris Sale uh, and... Thornburg and Morehouse, and who knows, they might not be done. On to talk about that in our next segment is Mike Shalin of the Associated Press. So stay with us. We'll be back.